Previously on Storyological. <laughs> we could talk about the beautiful beach we went to this morning. I've never seen so many stones in my life. <laughs> so much little pebbles and pebbles and pebbles. And I saw one man go down to the water. Down to the water? Oh, it was, it was quite a sight. He took his dog with him. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I saw one man sick, sitting counting the stones. And, you know, he's a... No, no, I did see one man standing on a board about 50 yards out to sea. Uh-huh. Uh, and he appeared to be using one of those long sticks that you use to push yourself across the bottom. Like he was punting. He was a bit pun- like he was punting. He, he was using a paddle. But, but yeah, he was paddling, standling, standing up. Standling. Standling, yeah. Um, but that's not what the British call paddling. Uh-uh. No. Paddling is rolling your trousers up. Um, taking your shoes and socks off and then getting into the sea just up to your ankles. So That's a proper paddle. Ankling, really. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerood. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick this week is An Account of the Decline of the Great Orc According to One Who Saw It by Jesse Greengrass. Oh, Chris has done an amazing little picture of one great orc sitting lonely on a rock. (laughs) Um, And the story is exactly what the title says. It is an account of how these birds were murdered. And it's told in the first person by an unnamed sailor slash hunter. It's a good word, murder. You know, you hear that word used a lot in describing the killing of animals. (laughs) Well, it's true, you don't. And I think that the... The melancholy of this story that comes from the first person makes you feel like they finally, at this point, it seems much later in their life as they reflect on what they did, they understand it to be murder and they understand it to be their responsibility. But at the the, the descriptions of the ways in which they kill these birds and the ways they justify it to themselves at the time, it's what makes it so painful to understand because you just you can feel this unnamed narrator sort of shaking their head at um their past selves and at the failures they had to confront their own monstrosity i guess and that that is what what i came away from this story feeling there's a line in it that says we told ourselves the birds were thinning for some other reason than us And this is after they describe going back to the rock each year and all the ways in which they systematically killed the birds. We hated how they didn't run away. And so it's like this kind of justification for why they took the actions that they did. And it really made me think of, you know, victim blaming and rape culture and the way that I think we talked before a while ago. I don't remember what story it was in relation to, but something that Sam said to us about in order to kill one section of your society you have to turn them into monsters first right and so he talked about the the jews being victimized and being talked about as monsters yes and anything they did to survive would be then seen as monstrous yeah exactly and and the way that this narrator talks about the birds and how that you can smell them from mile miles away and they live in their own filth and they were stupid and they didn't run away it's that kind of turning them into idiotic monsters and projecting their own monstrosity onto the birds because they don't want to admit that it came from inside themselves. The story reminded me 
of a breakup story, and also maybe think about the power of titles. One of the great things about a breakup story, and one of the things that one should do in a breakup story, is say at the beginning that we broke up. Mm-hmm. Um, because then the reader is reading to figure out, okay, how, why? And, and, the, and the power of this title is in a sense that it says in the title, well, we broke up. Or in this case, we murdered all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you are always reading to figure out really the what and how and why. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, she's constructed the story exactly in that order. What, how, why. There's first the what, which is you get the description of the island and how they went there for fish. And then there were all these birds the size of the goose. It was great. And then she goes into the how. Literally, like, talking about how the first years we climbed up and we did this and we found the eggs. And then, oh, we decided to pluck them. And she describes step mm. by step the, the plucking. And, and then it gets on into the, the why. There's a, there's a line near the end where the narrator says, here's the truth. We blame the birds for what we did to them, the, the line that you read. And so the story has moved from, from the what to the how to the real reason we're, we're always reading these things, which is to figure out why. Why is mm. the person dead? Why did they break up? Why did this horrible thing yeah, happen? Please let me make sense of it. Um, it's an interesting idea because I think one of the things that is interesting about the story is in some ways it could be read in the way of a polemic. Like the story could be read as directed at a particular feeling, which is look at the horrible things we have done to this bird. Then, you know, made bigger. Look at the horrible things we have done to our world. And what saves it is really the, the why does not help you make sense of the world. The why in this story about blaming the birds becomes a very confusing mirror, I think, for people to look into. Or at least it becomes a mirror that reflects more than just this story or just the just the damage we do to um, the earth. It becomes much more of a mirror into our souls and our monstrosity and our capability to do terrible things. It reminded me of in Fight Club, there is a bit where one of, well, where the narrator, also unnamed, Mm -hmm. decides that they're going to destroy this person's beautiful face. And in destroying it, they want to destroy all the beauty in the world. And I loved this story, how it connected into that, the sense of the the real nature of cynicism, which is an elevation of your own discontent and your own shame above the mystery and wonder of being. Mm. I think that's really interesting to bring up Fight Club and another unnamed narrator and how... What a neat literaturical and what a neat literary trick it is for transforming a polemic, transforming something that says, look at you, look at yourself as an individual, because it allows you, not just allows you, forces you to pour yourself into that space and be that person who's done those things. What you said about this being a breakup, like a breakup story. I thought about 500 Days of Summer and that starting with talking about breaking up and then I thought about this being 500 Days of Killing Great Orcs. I'm just just really enjoying the parallel that you've drawn there and imagining each of these scenes as, you know, the meet-cute, the first time they turn up at the island and it's just seething with birds there's so right. many of it as, yeah, as yeah. it rises like a dowager's hump Loves out of the sea infinite infinite possibility laid out before you yeah and that and then how that infinite possibility dwindles as they begin to understand the reality of 
what these birds are or what the relationship is and who they really are. And that's, I think, you know, what drives a lot of relationships to failure is that you have to blame somebody for the unhappiness that you're feeling. And it's much easier to blame the person that you're with rather than take the time to examine what you're thinking right. yourself and how you're behaving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that what I, I love about stories is the, the way it can bounce between those different registers of reality. Because, sure, in this story, they end up obliterating an entire species. But in a sense, it's no different. That that feeling of where ultimately you you misplace stuff. You mm-hmm. misplace yourself, you misplace others. That Helen Oyayemi book, What is Not Yours is Not Yours. Like, in the story, right, the shame that they feel over what they're doing they misplace, they, they put mm. their shame on to the other creature and say that creature is ugly, that creature is illegitimate, that creature is stupid. Somehow that creature has invited its own pain on itself. It is, it is everywhere all the time. And, and usually people go through two steps. They, they first, they, they make ugly, they make illegitimate, but that never works. Like in a relationship, you cannot make the other person illegitimate enough because their reality ultimately is continued proof that you are causing them pain and it's continued proof of your shame. So then you have to go to step two, which is destroy. You need to <laughs> yeah. obliterate the mirror that is reflecting your image because ultimately that's what, I, what reminded me of Fight Club and that's what I love about the image that she conjures of the island washed clean. Yeah. Like washed clean of guilt, but this idea of baptism by blood, mm-hmm. by death that you end up destroying everything beautiful in yourself and the world in the hopes of saving the image you have of yourself. Yeah, we do not like to be wrong. My pick pick this week is Sonny's Blues by James Baldwin. It was collected in his collection, Going to Meet the Man in 1965. I love this story. And if right now, if you haven't read it, if you just stop listening and go read it, I think that is a good choice. And if you don't make it back to this podcast for a day or two as you think about it, it's also probably a good choice. It's just that good. Sonny's Blues is a story uh, told from the point of view of a narrator whose little brother is named Sonny. A couple of black boys grew up in New York in the day. You know the day. The Harlem day. Yeah, yeah, the Harlem day. Like um, people, I, I've been reading a lot of James Baldwin. Uh, he's good. Uh, and he's mentioned as, a, as someone who was kind of bequeathed or he was uh, inherited or what's that word when you've... The torchbearer of the Harlem Renaissance. Let's make it an Olympic metaphor. Okay. I don't really know if the torchbearing thing started with the Olympics or they, in fact, stole it from something else that involved carrying the light of the world. Uh, but that's Baldwin. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to carry the light of the world. And in this story, Sonny... Uh, is is really he just got out of jail for some drug problems, and what Baldwin does in the narrative is is take the meeting of these brothers that have not met for quite a while and who have lived to some extent separate lives in part because the narrator, even though he promised their mother that he would look after Sonny, allowed himself to drift off with his wife and 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 to in a sense try to break from the cycle that he felt existed in the projects, existed in that society. And Sonny was left behind. And this story is the story of their meeting and the story of how the brother, the narrator, in being forced to confront his brother and in seeing his brother 
perform at the end to really perform the music of of his life things finally begin to snap together there's a there's a sense of a, of a wholeness and connection that might be possible not just for the brothers but for us as people mm. i've never read any james Baldwin before but i want to run out and buy everything he's ever written it was one of the most powerful things i've ever read and i feel like my chest has exploded and now contains a galaxy it was a wonderful dissection of failure and potential in communication between families and the kind of the vines that grow up around you and around the potential like these guys are so full of love for each other and hope for each other but they cannot reach across the narrow gap that exists between them to show their vulnerability to show what essentially is linking back to the story mm-hmm. before the, yeah. the monstrosity inside both of them that right. that has been compressing like coal i guess inside of them as they've grown up and they the narrator in particular is so scared of how he sees sunny's monster has come out in this heroin addiction that he cannot ask Sonny how he is or what he's up to or really how he can help Mm -hmm. because he's afraid of seeing what's really there. Baldwin and everything I've read is particularly good at demonstrating the way shame separates us from each other. Both the shame of, you know, being a black man in New York or being a, a gay man and feeling the sense that society doesn't want you, but also in the sense of the people who are, are feeling prejudice, who might be in some sense ashamed of their prejudice in the, in the way that the brother is ashamed of his prejudice against Sonny. Yeah. And that shame, too, prevents him from reaching out to Sonny, even though that's the thing that he dearly, you know, he most wants to do. And I love how Baldwin's language in this story gets at that. The sentences tie the characters into knots. And mm-hmm. we kind of end up spending the whole story hoping that they're going to, to break loose. And that hope in part comes from the promise that we see at the very beginning. First paragraph goes like this. I read about it in the paper and the subway on my way to work. I read it and I couldn't believe it. I read it again. Then perhaps I just stared at it at the newsprints, spelling out his name, spelling out the story. I stared at it in the swinging lights of the subway car and in the faces and bodies of the people and in my own face, trapped in the darkness which roared outside. Now one, you know, all uh, to be fair, is one of my favorite stories I've ever read really in a long time. It's really good and I love... The repetition of that it, the character, the narration, everything is stuck. It's knotted around the it. And it's an amazing trick how it's it, it, it is a new story. It's something in the paper. But then it becomes part of the swinging lights. Then it becomes in the faces and the bodies of the people. It grows and grows. And that adds to the sense that you're trapped. What's great is that here in the first few paragraphs, Baldwin gives you a little bit of hope because ultimately the repetitions, the the traps that are built into the sentences, once you get into the third paragraph, they release a bit. This it that hasn't been named suddenly gets a name. And in the naming, the sentences stop repeating themselves. 
I told myself that Sonny was wild, but he wasn't evil or disrespectful the way kids can, so quick, so quick, especially in Harlem. I didn't want to believe that I'd ever see my brother going down, coming to nothing, all that light in his face gone out, in the condition I'd already seen so many others. Yet it had happened, and here I was. The sentences unknot themselves into meaning, and it helps you, it begins to teach you and to give you hope that these characters can unknot themselves. And it's proven true at the end when the brother hears Sonny's music and he says, it brought something back to me and carried me past it. There's a couple of things that James does in this story that not only does he write these amazing characters who are all knotted up in pain and shame and makes you empathize with them, not only does he do that thing that writing teachers or tutors talk about, like he uses all of those scenic details to reflect and refract what the what the characters are going through but then and the kind of thematic and fractal level he this exploration of the way all the people are knotted up inside and the way that the pain each person carries with them in this family particularly but in the people around them in Harlem as well the way he kind of makes people translucent and brings that pain yeah, yeah. out mm. is incredible. So like, time and again, the, the people are described in a way that exposes that monstrosity. This is one description of a barmaid. I watched her face as she laughingly responded to something someone said to her, still keeping time to the music. When she smiled, one saw the little girl. One sensed the doomed, still struggling woman beneath the battered face of the semi-whore. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> sometimes there's there is an unhidden misogyny in Baldwin's work that you can either be entirely repulsed by, or I feel like that unhidden misogyny is some sense what you're talking about, about the translucence of characters. There is an unhidden shame and weakness in his characters that you can either push away or say, fuck it, I'm going in. Right, exactly. And he goes in every time like when he meets this one of Sonny's friends right at the beginning. The guy eventually at the end of the interaction asks him for money, as he always does. And uh, he asks him for a dollar, but he only has five. Here, I said, that hold you. He didn't look at it. He didn't want to look at it. A terrible closed look came over his face as though he were keeping the number on the bill a secret from him and me. Thanks, he said. And now he was dying to see me go. And I, the shame that is in both sides of that interaction is is just so yeah. it tears you up. Something about what you said of translucence. Let's like talk just for a second about the way James Baldwin describes music. Mm. He doesn't describe how it sounds. He doesn't describe the notes or the rhythms. Instead, it's like he translates it into a dialogue, into struggle, into communication, rather than giving us the sound of the music he gives us what it means to the narrator to the people performing it and it's that meaning that renders them translucent that allows mm -hmm. us to see it and right when he starts like right when the band first strikes the fiddle and there they were the narration it's almost like a record skipping because immediately the narrator right when the music starts says all i know about music is that not many people ever really hear it right and already you're like Okay, all right, you've turned the tables. 
Let's see where this is. I thought you were about to play me some music, but now you're telling me nobody ever even hears music. Right, but but now <laughs> I'm going to tell you what listening to music yeah, is really like. Yeah, right? And over the next three paragraphs, he keeps dipping in and out of the reality of the music being played, where he'll mention the fiddle or he'll mention a drum. He's just describing Sonny having such trouble playing the piano and realizing, he says, how you have to fill an instrument with the breath of life. And that's that's so much what it feels like Baldwin is trying to do here, is fill things with the breath of life. And the minute when Sonny really starts to hit it, and, and Baldwin and the narrator describes it as though he seemed to have found right there beneath his fingers a damn brand new piano. I don't know, I feel like I've never lit up as much as that feeling when Sonny found beneath his fingers a brand new piano and you're like, oh! It links back to that discussion earlier of when Sonny was staying with uh, the narrator's wife when, when the narrator was out away at war and, right. and they were trying to look after him and he was busy playing his records and playing, playing his music and they, like, neither, neither party really enjoyed this cohabitation, as it says. But neither did they dare make a great scene about that piano because even they dimly sensed, as I sensed from so many thousands of miles away, that Sonny was at that piano playing for his life, playing to find a way to ride that roar rising from the void, as he describes it at one time, the storm inside, the, the feeling that all of his characters are so riven with and that Sonny is finally finding you know he's the one person in the story who's finding a way to manage and mm-hmm. deal with it yeah yeah he's but it's terrifying for the narrator right. because yeah. because Sonny's putting Sonny. it out there yeah, yeah. for Sonny as well he's yeah. putting it out there and and showing his pain to the world there's a review Roger Ebert wrote of Swing Time it's a it's a musical with uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers oh yeah, yeah yeah I've seen it in the review Ebert says this he says When you see anyone, an athlete, a musician, a dancer, a craftsman, doing something difficult and making it look easy and a joy, you feel enhanced. It is a victory for the human side over the enemies of clumsiness, timidity, and exhaustion. Baldwin did such work, or as you would say, James, did such work in in linking in our minds these ideas of, of sound and darkness and and suffering and joy. There's a bit where quite skillfully he's walked us back into a flashback of the narrator talking to their mother. And she's talking about how his uncle, so his father's brother, had been walking along one night with a guitar on his back and went to to do his water next to a tree. I don't remember how she, but you know, one of those Mm -hmm. old ways people, you know, he dumped his water behind a tree. Uh, And then when he was walking out into the road, this truck full of white boys decided they were going to aim at him They were drunk, the uncle was drunk, and yeah, the the boys just ran him over on purpose. And the sound that is described of how the father heard his brother scream and the car rolled over him, and he heard the wood of that guitar when it gave, and he heard those strings go flying, and he heard the white men shouting. And then it said he had never in his life seen anything as dark as that road after the lights of the car had gone away. And there weren't nobody on that road, just your daddy and his brother and that busted guitar. And so there's like the, you know, the music, the sound was silenced and it's linked with darkness. And then mm. at the end, you know, when Sonny's really letting loose, it's as though Ebert was accidentally quoting from Baldwin because the narrator describes of Sonny, his triumph when he triumphs 
is ours. When I realized that the story was going to end with Sonny playing and the brother listening, I felt at the anticipation of it, I felt this huge flood of relief yeah. of being in the hands of a master and just feeling like, yes, this is perfect. Let's get there. Let's understand it. And then when we got there and it exceeded everything I had hoped for, and it becomes this incredible noise, right? You said the silence and the darkness, yeah. and then the noise is like the light. Sonny's release is also the brother's release. He says, I saw the moonlit road where my father's brother died and it brought something else back to me and carried me past it. I saw my little girl again and I felt Isabel's tears again and I felt my own tears begin to rise and I was yet aware that this was only a moment, that the world waited outside as hungry as a tiger and that trouble stretched above us longer than the sky. In the aftermath, in the sort of emotional fallout after the performance that's when the brothers have their little moment the narrator buys Sonny a drink the scotch and milk is placed on top of the piano and he didn't seem to notice it but just before they started playing again he sipped from it and looked towards me and nodded all right that's the best nod oh. in literature probably I'm like, we've just spent 7,000 words getting towards understanding what that nod means it's beautiful Thanks for listening, readers. We have probably not managed to say all of the things about these stories. Nor have we probably talked about all the stories. Not, not that exist in the world, no. So, if you would like to hit us up on Twitter, you can give us your recommendations and tell us your thoughts. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. And if you would like to like and follow us on Facebook, you can. We are at facebook.com slash storyological. That's storyological, spelled like it was five seconds ago. And if you would like to find us on iTunes and leave us a rating, we would absolutely love that because it helps other people find us too. Uh, and of course, for show notes, links to past episodes, appropriate and inappropriate gifts, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Yeah, you, what you said about this being a breakup, like a breakup story. If I thought about 500 Days of Summer and that starting with talking about breaking up and then I thought about this being 500 Days of Killing Great Orcs. Yeah, but, it's good. Yeah. You might have named our episode. <laughs> I'll even put the 500 in parentheses. Is that what is yeah. in the movie? Mm -hmm. Well, how come? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. That um, Intuitively, I'm going to say because it, it really emphasizes both the, the finite nature of that number, like it separates it from the phrase days of summer, which is itself its own phrase yeah with like the boys of summer the days of summer like a sense of, mm -hmm. of joy and having the number both separated by the parentheses and yet emphasized like in their numerical nature by having numerical symbols around them that makes mm -hmm. it not language not poetic i feel like it it creates a dissonance that is present in the story yeah. okay that's probably enough